You're listening to the weekly podcast of Bethel Bible Church and Pastor Ross Strader. We're so glad you've joined us today, and as always, you can find more information about the church at our website, BethelBible.com. You can find us on Facebook and even follow us on Twitter, at Bethel Bible. Let's join Sunday service now. All right. If you've got your Bibles, go to Micah chapter 3. We uh, started a series uh, in Micah, if you're, if you're new with us today or haven't been here in a few weeks, and so we're uh, making our way through Micah chapter at a time, and we're in Micah chapter 3. And if you'll remember, um, Micah is a prophet. He's an Old Testament prophet that's writing um, at a very interesting time in the history of Israel. Israel was united as a nation under King Saul, and uh, then there was King David and King Solomon. And after Solomon, the nation divided into north and to south. The northern part of the nation uh, became its own, and it was known as Israel um, from that point on. The southern part took the name of Judah after one of the tribes, the, the, the tribe of, of David, the, the king of Jerusalem. And so in the north, Samaria is the capital. In the south, Jerusalem's the capital. You have Israel in the north. Judah in the south. And Micah's writing at a time just before the north country, Israel, is going to be devastated by Assyria. They're going to be devastated. God's going to allow Assyria, this wartime nation, to come in and absolutely wipe them out as a judgment against the sin that has persisted over the generations in the north. Twenty Kings, one after another, are declared evil in the sight of God. Micah lives in the south. He sees what's happening in the north, and so he takes on to write the leaders, the, the political leaders and the, um, the, the religious leaders about the sin in the south. He's saying to them, essentially, listen, you, you look at the north and you think they're, they're getting what they deserve. God's going to judge them for their sin. And Micah says, listen, you have the same problems. We have the same problems. While they had been um, living under this umbrella that says, hey, God's not going to judge us. We're, I mean, we're Jerusalem. We're God's people. We have a king who is from the line of David. And there might be a few things wrong here and there, but we're God's people. And Micah shows up in the most graphic way to say to them, you're supposed to protect God's people and you're not doing it. You're supposed to be looking out for those that are oppressed, those that are poor, those that are weak, those that have no voice. And instead, you are exploiting them and you are perverting the justice of God. And he wants them to know in no uncertain terms that God sees it, and that He will answer it. And so that's where we are in Micah chapter 3. There's, we'll take it in three sections. Uh, we'll look at the first four verses, and then we'll look at 5 through 8, the next four verses, and then we'll look at the last four verses. So if, you, if you're with me, Micah chapter 3, I'm going to begin in verse 1. And I said, Hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel, is it not for you to know justice? You who hate the good and love the evil, who tear the skin from off my people and their flesh from off their bones, 
who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from off of them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron. Nobody's asking Micah to come speak at the conferences, I promise you that. Here's the judgment. Then they will cry to the Lord, but he will not answer them. He will hide his face from them at that time because they've made their deeds evil. Here in chapter 3, it begins a new section, a, a new sermon. I told you when we started the study, there are three sermons. The first two chapters are one sermon. The second sermon is chapters 3 through, through 5. The last sermon is chapters 6 through 7. They each begin with the word, hear. He, hear this is how he begins that section. Uh, those sermons. And each section, each sermon has two parts. The first part of it is judgment. This is the judgment. This is the indictment. This is, man, this is the sin that you need to be awakened to. And then the last part of the sermon is a hope, a hope for the future. The heads and the rulers that he's speaking of here, um, those are the ones that were appointed um, to serve the people of God in the matters of justice. That they're the, they're the judges, that, they're, um, uh, that they decide on matters between those that are the oppressors and those that are being oppressed. At least that's what they're supposed to do. In, in chapter 2, if you remember last week, we looked and there were these people, these land barons, and they were coming in and they were seizing property from those that are weak or vulnerable or the widows or the fatherless, and they were doing it because they had the power to do so. And when the powerful take advantage of the weak and the vulnerable, what recourse do the weak and the vulnerable have? Where are they supposed to go? Well, the idea is that they were supposed to be able to go to the rulers and the heads. But if you look at the end of chapter 2, what you see is the end of chapter 2, verse 12. We talked about it last week as Micah lays his judgment on. He, two verses at the end of chapter 2, here's the hope. And the hope is this. While the nation's not going to provide justice, the nation, you will not find justice in the nation, particularly in the north. Where those, uh, there is one that is coming. One he calls the, the breaker who's going to go before the people, the, the Lord as their head, the, the great advocate, the one champion of true justice, the Messiah. And here at the beginning of chapter 3, there's this contrast. Here, these heads of God's people, these are the ones that were supposed to be the guardians of justice. And Micah says to him, is it not for you to know justice? This, it was supposed to be in their blood. They were, they were men who, who, who were supposed to have loved the law, to be committed to, to, to justice. They committed their life to it. Who were appointed to be the guardians of those that, that were oppressed. What is the justice specifically? Well, Micah has a contemporary named Isaiah. Isaiah is another prophet at the same time Micah's prophesying. Isaiah is popular at least more well-known. Micah's a, a nobody from nowhere. Isaiah's writing about the same things. Mike, Micah says that maybe more pointedly, with a sharper edge. But Isaiah tells us about this justice in chapter 1 
of his prophecy. He tells the leaders, listen, cease to do evil and learn to do good. Seek justice. Now listen to how he describes it. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Defend the fatherless. Plead for the widow. This is what these rulers and heads weren't doing. See, they were supposed to embody a love for the good. They were supposed to embody a love for what was right, but instead they, they hated what was good and they loved what was evil. They were supposed to be the shepherds of the people. They, they, instead, they were butchers. They, they were wolves among the sheep. In fact, the way Micah says it, they're worse than wolves among sheep. You know what they were? They were cannibals. No other prophet speaks this graphically. He's full of passion. He's, he's trying to stab them awake. And, and later he's going to say, listen, the reason, the reason that you're doing this, the reason that you're distorting and perverting this justice of, of, and, and not looking out for the people that you were supposed to serve and defend is because you've sold your soul. Their judgments weren't based on judgments. They're based on their own satisfactions. They, they received bribes. They, they enjoyed favors. Essentially what they said is, listen, to hell with what's right. I'm looking out for me. See, that's what happens when people are them. When people are out there. We begin to define define people by the problem that they are to us. I mean, justice is great. I get it. The oppressed is great. I get it. I mean, I know that, uh, but it's such a problem. And when we begin to define people by the problems and the inconveniences they are to us, then what happens is we lose sight of the dignity of humanity. Notice the judgment in verse 4. Then they'll cry out to the Lord, these ones, these judges, these rulers, these heads. They'll cry out to the Lord, but He's not going to answer them. He will hide His face from them at that time because they've made their e deeds evil. The, the, the Hebrew word translated in verse 4, to, to cry out, was probably a word that was used when the, those that were oppressed went to the judges and they, and they cried out to the judges. And, and so they're going to be individuals just like those who appealed to them. They're going to cry out to the Lord, but they're going to discover that God's not listening. can't hear what it is that they're saying. The people were a, were a problem. In 1729, there was a guy, Jonathan Swift. He was an Irish satirist. You, you know his name. He, he wrote Gulliver's Travels. And... Um, he, but he's also famous, and, and uh, he published this anonymously, although everyone quickly knew who it was. And he was writing an essay 
that was aimed at the leadership of his country. Because the leadership of his country, they were, they were divided in many ways. They were wrestling with all of the social problems, particularly the problems of poverty and unemployment. And, and, um, and, and they were wrestling with them because the, the people out there, the people were poor. They weren't being able to feed their children. They didn't have enough jobs. Now, now the, the leaders, they, they, were all, they were all rich. They all lived in luxury. They, they all had everything they wanted. And as they viewed things, as they talked about things, as they wrestled with these issues of the common people that they had charge over, it was very apparent in the day that people were the problem. Look, this is your problem. In fact, they would say things like, if you, just, if you just wouldn't have so many children, there wouldn't be a problem. So Swift, in 1729, writes this essay. It's called, A Modest Proposal for Preventing the Children of Poor People from Becoming a Burden to Their Families or Country. His proposal, in effect, was this. To fatten up those undernourished children and feed them to Ireland's rich landowners. Children of the poor could be sold into a meat market at the age of one, he argues, thus combating overpopulation and unemployment, sparing families the expense of childbearing while providing them with a little extra income, improving the culinary experience of the wealthy, and contributing to the overall economic well-being of the nation. And he, and he goes on, he also anticipates that the practice of selling and eating children will have a positive effect on moral family morality. Husbands will finally be treating their wives with more respect. Parents will value their children in ways that they've not known before. He goes to great lengths. He argues for it. Uh, the, the, the possible preparation styles for children, calculations showing the financial benefits of the suggestion, and his conclusion. His conclusion is that the implementation of this project will do more to solve Ireland's complex social, political, and economic problems than any of the things they were proposing. And I know it sounds, you like, can't, you can't say that. I mean, not even in satire, you can't say that. It's what Micah's doing. And he's aimed it at the, at the leaders of the nation. The way that you administer justice You're cannibals, the way that you exploit people. It diminishes our understanding of the dignity of humanity. One writer speaks of human dignity this way. Human dignity means we are called to speak up for those who are in jeopardy, all of the vulnerable. Our vision of human dignity informs how we view the elderly, the disabled, the immigrant, the orphan, the widow, the persecuted, the poor, and the unborn. When the church honors and cares for the vulnerable among us, we're not showing charity. We're simply recognizing the way the world really works, at least in the long run. The child with Down syndrome that sits at the back of your church. He's not a ministry project. He's a future king of the universe. The immigrant woman who scrubs toilets every day on hands and knees, can barely speak English enough to sing along with your praise choruses. She's not a problem to be solved. 
She's a future queen of the cosmos, a joint heir with Christ. The first step to influencing the culture is not to contextualize to the present, but to contextualize to the future. That we are people with a three trillion year view of humanity. That's his indictment. They're so caught up in the now. They're so caught up with the problems. All they cared about was their economic well-being. All they cared about was themselves. Willing to overlook the injustices. We'll look in verse 5. So he aims at the leaders in the first four verses. Here he's going to take aim at the prophets. The prophets were supposed to speak for God. They were supposed to provide hope, truth, and hope to the nation. Here's what he says, beginning verse 5. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against him who puts nothing into their mouths. Therefore it shall be night to you, without vision and darkness to you, without divination. The sun shall go down on the prophets, the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips, for there is no answer from God. And then in verse 8, Mike is going to tell us something about himself. The only place he does this. But as for me, Micah says, I'm filled with power, with the Spirit of the Lord, and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. In verse 5, this word lead astray, it's an interesting word. It, it means to, to wander about aimlessly or to cause someone to wander about aimlessly. It's also the same word that's used that if you were to cause somebody to get drunk and, 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 and put them in a stupor, that's the same word. What these prophets were doing is they were causing people to aimlessly wander around. They were causing them to live, to walk around, to be oriented like they were drunk. It's what happens when God is diminished. It's what happens when God's made small. When the prophets are for hire, and it all comes down to, listen, you, you want something good? You, you want some hope? How much money do you got? Oh, you, you don't have any for me? Well, God's going to declare war against you. The prophets weren't hearing from God. They were speaking based upon their checkbooks, based, based upon what they were able to make. They had no fear of the great and mighty God that they said that they spoke for. One writer says this, a great God makes proud sinners uncomfortable, a diminished God less so. Given our sinful proclivity to exalt ourselves, the diminished God can easily become a means to an end. While such a God is still much bigger and more powerful than we are, nevertheless, the smaller we make him, the greater opportunity to manipulate his power to further our sinful ends. Unlike the God of the Bible, who has decreed 
whatsoever comes to pass, Ephesians 1.11, and whoever does what he pleases, Psalm 115.3, the diminished God exists to do whatever pleases us. He's on call 24-7. He's there to attend all our whims and respond to all our constant whining. This God is not to be served and adored. Rather, he is a means to an end. He's like the genie freed from his bottle. There is a God there who answers our prayers and gives us what we wish. This is what they had done. This is who they presented. So in verses 6 and 7, he he says, here's the judgment, the the coming of night, the cessation of revelation, that they won't be able to hear from God. They were practicing omens and divinations. They were never supposed to do any of those things. In fact, what it was like, it was like seeking the wisdom of God in the landfill of the enemy. You you see this um, Saul, who was the first king of Israel, for a short time. He, um, after Samuel died, Saul found himself into some trouble, and so he wanted to, to discuss this with Samuel, and so what he does is he, he sneaks off to a cave to the witch of Endor, disguises himself, gets to the witch of Endor, and says, hey, will you summon up this guy, Samuel, witch of Endor's there. She's practicing omens and divinations, brings up Samuel. Samuel says, what? are you doing? In fact, the witch of Endor realizes who this is. This is Samuel, realizes this is Saul, and and she freaks out. She doesn't want to have anything to do with that. This is what they were doing. So in verse 8, because of verse 6 and 7, Micah states, states something about himself. This is where his power comes from, the source of his revelation, the reason of his, for his strong sense of justice. Listen, there's a correlation between our source of wisdom and our understanding the character of justice. Where we go for wisdom has a direct correlation on how we see justice. Micah says that he comes in power, not his own power, but God's power, God's Spirit. He knows that he's doing something that's beyond what he could naturally do on his own. He comes for justice. Micah, he's living for the welfare of others. He's, he's speaking for the mute. He's seeing for the blind. He's being a father to the fatherless. He comes in might. Is this holy courage that enables him to face this danger, to speak the truth in delivering his testimony because he fears God above any Micah was a lonely guy in his day. Well, he speaks to the injustice of the, of the courts, of the leaders. And he speaks about the injustice of the prophets, those who are supposed to speak for God. In these last four verses, beginning in verse 9, he's going to speak about the injustice of the whole system. All right? Look at what it says, verse 9. Hear this, you heads of the house of Jacob, and the rulers of the house of Israel, just like he said in verse 1, who detest judge justice and make crooked all that is straight, who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with iniquity. 
Now, here's the indictment on the whole system, verse 11. Its heads give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets practice divination for money. Yet they lean on the Lord and they say, Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins. The mountain of the house of wooded height. The fact that the heads are mentioned there at the beginning, every class is corrupted. The legal head, the spiritual head, the, the person who you'd go to with personal problems, the, those that were supposed to be the counselors and the, and the wisdom, it's all corrupted. If you had a legal problem of the day, you went to the heads, the judges. If you had a spiritual problem, you would go to the priests. They were the ones who were supposed to have the knowledge of the Word of God. If you had a, a, a problem, so I, 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 you were losing hope for the future, you, you, you went to the prophets who spoke for God. But you would go to these people, you'd go to the courts, you'd go to the prophets, you'd go to the priests, and you'd find that they were not interested in anything other than their own economic standing. The whole system was corrupt. How does justice happen in the midst of that? How do those who are oppressed, how do the weak, how do the vulnerable, who's left to hear them? Ooh, casualties. The 8th century B.C., Micah is writing about the casualties of the people because the system of justice is broken and it's leaving ruin everywhere. You fast forward to the 21st century and it's not much different, is it? The system's broken. Ruin is everywhere. It's a commentator, Dale Ralph Davis. Outstanding commentator. Wrote a commentary on the book of Micah. He's been incredibly helpful to us as we've been preaching through it. And On verse 11, he makes this comment. I'll read it to you. You know where they say, notice... Is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster will come upon us. He says this. In spite of the civil injustice and the religious trickery, leaders in Judah were cocksure that they would face no disaster. There's the temple, the place of God's presence. He, he would never allow. So beware of the attitudes that begin with, oh, God would never. He said, I cannot speak for others. I can only say that there oftentimes seems to be an undertow of this presumption in my own country, the USA. And it can easily filter into the minds of Christians. We think that our nation has some sort of manifest destiny, that though America may sometimes be bungling and stupid, she's nevertheless invincible. Surely we might infer God knows how many thousands of dollars for international missions come from this nation, how many evangelical agencies and 
colleges and seminaries there are here and how much support for worldwide relief work flows from this country, surely God would never. He goes on. What would happen to the kingdom of God if he wiped out such a support system off the map in judgment? Nothing. God's kingdom would still come. He doesn't need arrogant superpowers to help him, nor does an evangelical empires to assist him. Some of us must keep our eye on that line between patriotism and idolatry. We can't live as though God would never. The system's broken. Notice the result in verse 12. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field, Jerusalem shall be a heap of ruins, and the mountains of the house at wooded height. Verse 12, interestingly enough, you can write this down. You can win this on the, on the Bible trivia game. It's the only Old Testament verse that's quoted verbatim in the Old Testament. Jeremiah quotes it a hundred years later. And he looks back on Micah's time and uh, Micah, you remember from chapter 1, is writing in the time of Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah. Hezekiah becomes king. He hears Micah's message, and, and Hezekiah actually repents. And it's Hezekiah's repentance and the turning away from the idolatry that in that moment when Assyria came down and wiped out the north, the south was protected. But it wouldn't be long after that when Hezekiah's gone and the new kings come that the future fate was sealed and Jerusalem is ransacked by Babylon, its people taken into captive, and then for the next years God's people get scattered to the four corners of the earth. And in A.D. 70, a Roman military leader comes in and destroys Jerusalem. It becomes the heap of ruins God had promised. Not a stone was left unturned in the city. It was plowed like a field. Where the great city once was, vegetable gardens came up out of the ground. In the next couple of chapters, we're going to see the next couple of weeks. Micah's going to offer a great hope. But you can't understand the great hope until you understand the severity of the sin and until you understand the judgment against the wickedness and rebellion against God and against fellow humanity you know here's the deal verse 12 plowed as a field become a heap of ruins There were already people in their personal lives in that day walking around like that. 
And you know what? There are, there are people, a lot of people, walking around in our midst. Maybe you're here this morning, and you feel the reality of verse 12 in your life. Plowed as a field, a, my, my heap of, of ruin. The, the ruin of, of justice has reached their life. Maybe it's reached your life. And it could have come in so many ways. What do we do as the church? What is our response as the oppressors seem to oppress and the ones oppressed seem to have no voice? Who stands for the vulnerable and the weak? I'll take one issue. There are many that I could take, but I'll address one. I take my cue from Russell Moore. In his latest book, it's called Onward, Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. And he has a word about the issue of abortion in this nation. So you've probably seen the billboard that says abortion stops a beating heart. Honestly, I wish the billboard said something different. I wish it said abortion stops beating hearts. The change is significant because it strikes at the core of what we as evangelicals mean when we talk about being pro-life. Abortion is not just a sin against the unborn, though it certainly is that. It is not only a sin against the image of God, though we're right to remind people that it is. Abortion is also a sin against women. It's not just killing of the body, but it's a killing of the conscience. Our task as pro-life Christians is not only to advocate for laws that protect unborn children, it's to advocate on behalf of the women walking toward the abortion clinic. And to do this, we have to recognize that abortion is not ultimately about arguments. It's not ultimately about having the most persuasive political rhetoric. It's often about something more primal. When I've talked to those who've worked in abortion clinics, one thing they often tell me is of the women who come into their facilities, they aren't talking about autonomy or choice. They don't speak of their baby as a blob of tissue. Most of these young women understand exactly what's at stake, but they believe they have no other option and no other choice. Some of these women, even some of the doctors, are religious and would identify as pro-life in a barnapole. Yet when the moment of crisis comes, when the threat of shame and scandal and poverty feel imminent, these women see the abortion clinic as their only option. What these women and men are unable to see is the deceitfulness of the enemy. No one's more pro-choice than Satan on the way to the abortion clinic, and no one is more pro-life than Satan on the way out. Promises of freedom and relief are quickly turned into accusations and assaults on the soul. What seemed like the only way on Friday feels like an unthinkable atrocity on Sunday. And these crushed consciences slip in and out of morning worship, convinced that the preacher's words about forgiveness and mercy and atonement apply to everyone else but them. 
And being, if being pro-life means anything, it means having a word not just for those walking toward the abortion clinic, but also for those walking out of it. We must have something to say when we see in our churches those women and men whose throbbing consciences are crying out against them. What do we tell them? Well, the first thing we must say is that their consciences are right. Clinical privacy laws cannot hide their choice from the knowledge of Christ. This is a holy judgment hanging on abortion, and the guilt they feel is real. But we can't stop there. Abortion kills the conscience, yes, but consciences can be brought back to life again. The woman who's had an abortion needs to know that if she is hidden in Christ, God doesn't see her as the woman who had the abortion. He hasn't been subverted into sending her to hell because she found a gospel loophole. In Christ, she's already been to hell. And in the resurrection of Christ, God has already told her what he thinks of her. You're my beloved child, and in you I am well pleased. It's not enough for our churches to believe in gospel reconciliation at the judgment seat of Christ. We must live it out in the fellowship halls and the church picnics, our Bible studies in small groups. The church cannot preach that Christ became a curse for us while treating those who repent still accursed. How much of an abortion clinic's charm would be disarmed if our churches offered grace and friendship and support rather than rumor and whisper and scandal? Abortion kills. It kills a human being, a child, in the image of God. But it also kills the conscience. I have come, Jesus declared, that they may have life. Let's proclaim His grace for the unborn as well as the born again. You know, the New Testament's clear that before the crown of resurrection that Jesus wore, there was a cross. In Colossians chapter 1, it says, For in Him, in Jesus, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Him, to reconcile Himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Christ's work on the cross paid the debt we owed, and in doing so, reconciled the entire universe with God. God's not reconciled to us. We are reconciled to Him. Jesus' payment for our sin made peace between us and God. Do you believe Him? Do you trust Him? God is the God of all creation, and all of creation is being restored since Christ died on the cross. All that was lost in the fall is regained because of Christ's work on the cross. Like the hymn writer says, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse 
is found. So if you're here this morning, and you feel plowed as the field, and a heap of ruin, know you have a Savior. Micah said in the last chapter, the breaker, the champion, the advocate. The one who has come to defend the defenseless, to grant hope to the hopeless. You're his. You trust him. Do you believe him? Get to see some great things in the next two chapters. Some great things. But if you're here this morning and you haven't trusted Christ, if you haven't gone to him, if if, if by faith you, you haven't taken hold of all that he offers. I invite you to do that before you do anything else. Do that. And become in this moment, know the joy of what it is to be a child of the living God. If you would, would you bow with me and let's pray. Father, we come this morning and confess that the system that was broken in the 8th century B.C. is still broken today. By how easy it is for us in the 21st century to believe that we have become more sophisticated. But Father, at the end of the day, there's, there's the voiceless and the hopeless and the helpless that when they look to the provisions in this world, they find nothing. And the cannibalism of Micah's day is alive and well today. And so, Father, I pray that as the church, as your people, you would draw us to your Son, Christ. You would make us beacons of of truth, the whole truth. And that, Father, we would be the vessels of grace from which the world drank of your goodness and mercy. Father, I pray that the beauty of Christ would not be diminished in our lives, that you would grant us power and might and courage to be good stewards of the great news of your Son, Jesus. 
Father, to all of us who are broken, draw us to your Son. Heal us. Grant us hope. Give us light to see beyond this day into the trillions of years that await our basking in your beauty and your glory and your goodness. Father, draw us all to your Son. We ask this the only way that we can, and that is in the name of your Son, Jesus, who is seated at your right hand, making intercession for us even now. Father, by the power of your Spirit. Thanks again for listening to the podcast today. We hope that you were blessed and encouraged. And if you have any questions or comments, we want you to let us know. Simply send your thoughts to questions at Bethelbible.com. Thanks for spending time with us and be sure to join us next week on the Bethel Bible Podcast.